Woodstock, Deadheads, The Village, Kate Ashbury, Counterculture, Women's Lib, Karma, Enlightenment. <laughs> sound familiar or sound foreign? That's okay. Join us, the two old bogey yogis, as we reminisce, discuss our spiritual paths, and explore all things yoga, meditation, and more. Your hosts each week are Swami Yashokananda and Reverend Prem, who between us have nearly a hundred years of living La Vida Integral Yoga. And that's what makes us the two, two old bogey yogis. <laughs> So welcome back for another episode. Today, I'm thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about scripture. Probably not a popular word today, has a lot of past history to it, tied to all kinds of religious institutions and tyrannies and patriarchies and all those kind of things. But in yoga, I think that it's just a different situation in some respects, even though many of the texts were authored by men, the same in Buddhism. Still, I really like the kind of modern commentaries, Gurudev of course, whose language in referring to God or something divine, he's always brought in him, her, it, whatever you're comfortable with. And even if you're not comfortable with the idea of a creator type God, it doesn't matter. He would always say, peace is my God. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's always talked about cosmic consciousness which ties in very beautifully consciousness, pure awareness with the Buddhist tradition. So I think it's interesting to talk about, so what are the foundational texts in yoga, particularly in integral yoga? And I'm thinking of the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita. Sometimes we do talk about the Tirukral. I wish there was another term. Yeah. Authoritative book, foundational yeah, foundational text, yeah. Yeah, foundational text. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like foundational yeah. text, yeah. yeah. Because this text of the Tirukural is an ancient South Indian text that is from Gurudev's tradition and his culture and the Tamil culture. And he would quote it mm. often. It's amazing uh, how he knew it backward and forward. He talked about how he's not really a scholar, but it was amazing his memory of, of, of these old foundational texts yeah yeah it was amazing yeah. like yeah. he would always say that like yeah i'm not a scholar you know? <laughs> yeah right yeah <laughs> and then we'd be in the midst of something and he'd just like come out with an entire sanskrit verse of an entire chapter or something yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i think a key yoga practice and particularly in the Patanjalian system is the practice of Svadhyaya, which both includes the study of these texts and also self-study. I feel like there's a, a deep engagement with sacred texts. So I was in this class again with uh, Edwin Bryant, uh, a deep dive into the sutras. You told you me, know, yeah, it sounds interesting. Yeah, It's so interesting. So he's teaching on the sutras, but he's also quoting a lot from the Gita and looking at intersections and things. He calls them literary incarnations. I like that. It's gorgeous because he says, it's not like, okay, you know how, let's say you read a novel, maybe it could be captivating. Who knows? Maybe you'll even read it a second time at some point. But he said, these texts aren't just a literary expression. He said, the text is infinite. Each time you read it, you just go deeper and deeper 
and deeper. It reminds me of a conversation with Jagannath, who's written brilliant books on the Yoga Sutras, his Inside the Yoga Sutras, and he has a new book, Inside Patanjali's Words. Mm -hmm. I heard he, about that. Yeah. Yeah. He does an even deeper dive into mm -hmm. each of the words in the sutras. Mm -hmm. I was helping him edit the book and he was, and I said, okay, do you want to look at this? Because I made a few tweaks in your commentary that I felt could help clarify. And that's always helpful to get that input from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so this is what we would do. Like I, he would send me chapters. I would read them, give him some input. He'd think about, it make any tweaks. So now we're on the last go around. I said, I just think if we just do this one more thing. And he said, yeah, I just think if I look at this one more time, I'm going to rewrite the whole book. Oh no. <laughs> because he said every time he would pick it up, he'd see something else, you know? I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I want to get into that with you and your yeah. journey with yeah. the Bhagavad Gita, <laughs> yeah. because it's true. When we really think about these texts, they are like the proverbial onion. You just peel and peel and peel. It's like this huge onion. Edwin was, he was pointing to, these are like literary incarnations they hold such profound wisdom. So he was saying that in the moksha traditions, that's what he calls them, the moksha traditions, like Buddhism and Hinduism, Lib yoga. Liberation. Yeah. Liberation yeah. 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 The goal is to take us to liberation, eternality. So he says that that's what these texts do. They are signposts, inspiration, hints, map points on the journey to liberation. He says, so the difference in reading these is when you read something, a non-foundational text, you might read it with some Thomas sitting on the couch. You sort of fall asleep maybe partway through. You pick it up again or you don't. Or you just, okay, I've got this text. I got to read it for class. Get through it. But Swadhyaya is essentially sattva. It has this quality of sattva to go deep. So these are deep dives into understanding the mind. And Edwin was saying, in the case of the sutras, it's a deep dive into understanding how to meditate, whereas the Gita is a deep dive in how to act. Mm -hmm. I never looked at it that way. Should we look at the Gita and then come back sure. to the sutras? Sure. I can talk about my experience. Okay. I agree with Mr. Brian saying, you and I and any of the old timers listening to this, you know, we had that blessing of being with a living master to have a, a guru and to learn from them. Many people don't have that. But I find now as I'm, as I work with the Bhagavad Gita, I, just so people know, I've been working on this book on the Bhagavad Gita translation and commentary doing something like Jagannath, looking at each word, and I'm trying to understand exactly what is being said here, and then how to say it so that in modern times it could be understood. As I'm doing this deep dive into the Bhagavad Gita, I feel I'm with a living guru. It's alive. I'm getting some some real darshan. I'm in the presence of, of an alive consciousness. I would say that's happening more recently, where, as Pramanta, you were saying, that uh, you just go further and further into it, and you feel there's a living being that you're connecting with. Whoa, that is like <laughs> what Edwin was saying. It's a literary incarnation. <laughs> incarnation. You... It's an incarnation, yeah. So you, you feel that. But of course, it can be read like a book. Not everyone will feel that. 
And I would say I didn't feel that for many years. And even now, I, I can't say I'm established in that. When I really go in there in a re- the right receptive place, then I'm sitting in the presence of a master getting the teachings. Wow. Yeah. So I agree with that part. You know, I, I started this, this book around 10 years ago, wow. even, even, even more, because I was living at the ashram at the time, going through a hard period of my life. And I just said, let me go deeper into this. And I just started writing down my thoughts. And then I said, I'm going to keep up with this. And I just. But, but what drew you at that point where you were, you're having a hard time, there was a multitude of things you could have done. What drew you to fit to saying to yourself, maybe this is something I can connect with and can explore more deeply. I had already felt some benefit previously of Bhagavad Gita study. So it wasn't uh, out, out from nowhere that I decided to do that. But I would say it feels to me in retrospect, like Guru's grace. He said, this is what you need to do now. And the best way to absorb it is to write about it and try to teach it. Mm. I mean, I do see the benefit of writing my thoughts down and trying to convey those thoughts. There's nothing for a deeper, better for a deeper dive and to try to find your own authentic way of expressing what you're learning while still making sure it's clear. It's not your teachings. You're expressing them in your way. You have to do that. Otherwise, it won't, you won't enjoy it and it won't have any shakti to it. People won't get engaged by it. So like, like we've talked about in the past, you know, uh, I'm not doing this as an academic. Edwin Bryant is a practitioner academic. I'm more of a practitioner. I'm going in there really trying to see what this means in my life. And then what this could mean for someone else's life when I try to share it. So I started this like maybe 11 years ago. So I'm almost finishing the book on the 18th, the last chapter, 18th chapter. So I just started reviewing what I've done before. And this is written like 11 years ago. I was working on the second chapter. And I said, you know, this is pretty good stuff, but I've evolved a lot in 11 years. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can take this much deeper. Yeah. And, wow. and, and two, my writing is much more, I can be much more clear and crisp and succinct and nail it better than beating around the bush. I just started it again. Second chapter. I had, I had the framework for it, but like Jagannath said, I basically had to start over again. And the truth is that I did that. I did the second chapter over again. And then I started looking at it again and I, and I started doing it over a third time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, that frightens me a bit because I have 18 chapters, you know, <laughs> <laughs> And there is, I have one women in lifetime, so. <laughs> yeah, but, going- but, but take heart because Jagannath's new book, this Inside Patanjali's Words, is like over 400 pages in between Inside the Yoga Sutras and this book. But I mean, between years, that yeah. time, he, yeah, but he did also write a book on meditation, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, during those years, but that he had come back to the sutras to really rework things and to bring in his deepening experience. It is an interesting process. And I guess if we can take heart in what Edwin says that these are like incarnations. So it's, there's just always going to be more layers. Yeah. Yeah. At some point you're going to have to. (laughs) That's it. <laughs> you know, yeah, because our understanding grows. And but at some point you have to put something in print and let them publish it. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. The Bhagavad Gita book will be probably six, seven, maybe seven hundred pages. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my and that God. and that's my new succinct way of putting things. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to consider consider a two volume series. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, there are, Ash Warren did that. He made his uh, two volumes. Uh, Mahesh Yogi, I think, had like three or four volumes. So 
in one of the classes with Edwin Bryant, he, he made a comment of something. Now he comes from a bhakti yoga perspective and, mm-hmm. you know, he's done commentaries on the Bhagavata Puranam and he's very steeped in the Vaishnava tradition. Of course, the Gita. Bhakti you normally think of as, you don't think of them as so intellectual, but he, bhakti oh. yogis can be very very, uh, think very of, yeah. yeah, think of all the scholar practitioners, Graham Schweig. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Edwin, many more. Yeah, yeah. So Edwin was saying that the Gita is this treatise on right action, karma yoga. And he didn't mention, now maybe he will down the road, but he didn't mention the other yogas that are part of the Gita, I guess for students of yoga and particularly also integral yoga, what does the Gita highlight in terms of the path of yoga, sadhana, practice, all of that? Yeah, I think Swami Chaitananda took some of those traditional South Indian fundamental texts, but he had his own realization. And then he really used the the sutras and the Bhagavad Gita to, to come up with something called integral yoga. I do think there's truth in what Mr. Bryant said about a treatise on action, but to do action properly means that you're connected to something beyond the individual consciousness, beyond our separate consciousness, and you're connected to that through your heart. So that connection to, to something beyond the ego is, is our yana yoga, and connecting with it through the heart is bhakti yoga, and then making that manifest in the world is karma yoga. And, you know, meditation is also an important part. A whole chapter is devoted to, uh, six chapters devoted to meditation. How do you make that connection? How do you get beyond the conditioned mind? How do you see your samskaras as something external from you so that you can not be so caught in them, so stuck in them? And you can't do it through your own willpower. You need a stronger, more powerful source of energy than willpower, because the samskaras are more powerful than, than our willpower. That's yeah. why it's so hard to change uh, just through saying, uh, just say no or whatever. Uh, it's very hard to change that way. But if you can tap into closer to the source of, of your essence, then I think you have a chance to shift what you're stuck in. That's what I'm learning, uh, that yana, bhakti, and karma are not really, we, we separate them for some reason that may work for some people. So let's just clarify for, for people who are new to yoga. So yana being the path of wisdom and it's self-study, self-reflection, asking who am I? You normally it's done through an intellectual sh- clarifying and sharpening your intellect, what's called the buddhi. Mm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And then bhakti, bhakti yoga. yoga, you want to say something about that? Yeah. Bhakti yoga is, is shifting your allegiance from depending on material things to depending on and surrendering to the source of everything. That'd be one definition that comes to mind. Do we want to take a shot at that? Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, think, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. you express that so beautifully. Okay, yeah. Karma yoga is normally an action creates an impression and that impression has to come back to us. And then we can't fulfill Because an impression is also, even our thoughts leave impressions. So we're always impressing. We can't do that all in one birth. We keep coming back through this cycle of birth and death. Karma yoga is, is you're acting in a way that's not leaving an impression. And then at a higher level, you're not only not leaving an impression by your current action, like right now where you and I are talking. Karma yoga would be, we're not leaving any 
repercussion that we'll have to face in the future, even a good one. But we're actually just finishing off our past repercussions. <laughs> <laughs> our, our talk now is something that was destined to happen, where we're not generating anything that we have to face in the future. And we're just finishing off something that we had to face now, so that we're cleaning out what's called the, the karmasia, the womb of karma, where we're giving birth and we're, we're finishing off, we're, we're sending those seeds out and we're not, they're not coming back to us. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be karma yoga. And that's a, to do real karma yoga is, you know, we usually think that, oh, I'll start with karma yoga. I hope the old lady across the street and whatever it means. Uh, the karma yoga is, 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 a, is a very evolved practice if you're going to do it the way we're talking about it now. Give an example. I think a lot of times people think, yeah, it is. So I'll just, um, <laughs> you know, I'll offer to wash the dishes tonight. For <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, you watch the football game. I'll wash the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my karma yoga. <laughs> and you're thinking, and that guy, he's going to do something for me next. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't forget, I washed the dishes. <laughs> well, enjoy your football game now. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> tomorrow... <laughs> <laughs> it's payback, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, what was the question? So then, what? Give is, an example. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, what is karma yoga according to the yoga system? What is? Yeah, I think we've touched on this before. There's the first and most accessible aspect, which doesn't mean it's easy. Which is, I'm doing something not to receive something. I'm doing something not to get the not to get the fruit for myself. I'm talking to you now because it's such a delightful thing to talk to you. And maybe it's one or two people listen and they may, may even get some benefit from it. That's it. I'm not, I'm not waiting for counting how many people can listen to it and uh, uh, thinking about what I can get next from it, how I can milk this for more. Uh, so there's not looking after the fruit. There's the higher level of karma yoga, which is the recognition that I'm not the agent of this action, that there's a, a power behind the universe that's acting through this body mind. Therefore, there's no karma to come to this body mind because I'm not the agent of the action. That what I call the, the, yana, the yana yoga aspect of karma yoga. Oh, that's interesting. I like yeah. how you brought in the yana yoga aspect. Yeah, yeah. The Gita, Gurudev used to stress it so much, that aspect of not looking for the fruit and that how that's elucidated in the Gita. Do you feel like that's a super key teaching? Are there other really key teachings around karma yoga or anything else? I, I was just reading the chapter, the yoga of renunciation. I mean, what's that all about? It's like each chapter seems to just address different aspects. I don't know. It seems very integral yoga in many ways to me. It's integral yoga in many ways, uh, almost in all ways. Uh, yeah, but I mean, how do you how do you let go of the fruit? If if you feel that something is missing in your life, if there's a hole in your heart, and you have, how do you, I need to? Why would I do something, and not look for the result? Uh, I I need something. Something's missing. So, the, it always predicated on the fact that nothing is missing. The only way you can not look for the fruit, if if, if you're already full. You don't want to eat any more fruit. Uh, I'm already, <laughs> I can't eat anymore. I'm so full. I just want to give it out because I, I can't eat anymore. I'm full. So, yeah, I like this image of like your glass is full. It's so full, it's overflowing. That overflow is what goes out to others to nourish them. 
the overflow is the real karma yoga. If the class is half full and, and you, you're wondering how you're going to make it full, you won't, you won't be able to really act in the way that the Gita is talking about. Yeah, you know, I was talking with someone, he's a Buddhist and he's also a therapist and he said something so insightful to me. In karma yoga, we often think, well, okay, so I'm just going to give, give, give. I'm not going to look for the fruits. I'm not going to look for anything in return. And then, like he was saying, you think you're the sun. The sun doesn't look for anything, right? It just shines. It's not saying, wait, are people paying attention to me? Or, hey, I don't feel like it today. It's just like the nature of the sun is it just shines. He was pointing out to me, you as a human being think you can be the sun. You can't be the sun. Your cup also has to be full. You can't nourish people like you were saying from a half empty cup. So I think that there's sometimes a tendency to do some spiritual bypassing around this teaching to think, well, no, I shouldn't have any needs. Let me sublimate my needs or repress my or whatever, and just be here to serve others. But what happens is those needs that are just human, I'm not talking about any kind of exaggerated need, just basic getting your needs met. Somehow it gets confused, I think, sometimes that we shouldn't even do that. So that we're just trying to be these pure selfless servants. I'm sure you ran into that as you're a sannyasi, a renunciate. You've taken vows. Mm -hmm. You live a certain lifestyle. And I would think that does come with this responsibility to just purely be of service, but that that can get really misunderstood to mean, oh yeah, and you should not take care of yourself as well. And that's when I think things do come out sideways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And people are resentful or they're just sort of pushing down. This, and I call it like slime. It's like it seeps out and it slimes yeah. other people yeah. because there's these subtle resentments and, and a neediness and a feeling unsupported and used up. And all of these kind of near enemies of selfless service. What a beautiful, brilliant thing you just talked about. It's so, yeah, I experienced, like you say, I, I have some experience with that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When someone, when a half full cup feels that, no, no, I have to keep serving. I need to sublimate what I need, you know. Uh, uh, then uh, when someone serves me like that, I feel it feels like, like the helping hand strikes again. Okay, please. <laughs> <laughs> Don't serve someone else, please, you know. <laughs> like you say, it's, a, it's kind of a slime through it. I, I don't want to put it too strongly, but yeah, something's off there for sure. Something's off. And when you walk away, you notice like there's some coating. Yeah, yeah. Covering, you <laughs> yeah. know, where did this come from? <laughs> yeah. It's not like clean. It's not a, just a pure, clean action because the individual with all good intentions, maybe, is just not attending to their own needs and what, and their own inner sustenance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The joy is not there. Uh, and the joy can't be there if yeah. you are cutting off parts of yourself. Yeah. So it's a fine line. It's kind of a razor's edge figuring out how to not be indulging or how good it have used to make that distinction between wants and needs. Mm-hmm. There yeah, is yeah. really a distinction between that. And we do have basic human needs. 
to be loved, to be understood, to be supported, to have time for ourselves, to have time with others, to attend to our daily eating, sleeping, et cetera, et cetera. Even some entertainment is, yeah. is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If I'm going to not look for the fruit of the action because my cup is full, or let's say my cup is not full, it's getting, you know, I practice yoga, it's getting a little more full, but it's not full yet. So I still have to acknowledge that. So that's the first thing. I think we have to recognize that, you know, my foot, my, I'm not totally full yet. I'm not going to pretend to be full. Uh, so I, I don't want to gather that slime around me. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to see, I could say what's, what's different to the want and a need and what's the difference between uh, healthy indulgence and an overindulgence. Yeah. You were talking but, about it like Shreyas and Preyas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's shreyas to give yourself some prayas. You're, you're moving toward in the right direction by giving yourself a little enjoyment in life. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at Gurudev, you know, uh, he, wasn't a, uh, he wasn't this dried out person, you know, he was full of, of vim and vigor and he knew how to enjoy his life. Totally juicy. <laughs> juicy, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 and that's what he saw. I love the story that he tells about his own guru. I was telling somebody, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, he comes, he's like, Gurudev was this very austere, that's aesthetic true. kind he was, of, yeah, that's very true, yeah. Living on just like a banana, and, you know, <laughs> some yogurt. And then he makes his way to Rishikesh after studying with a bunch of different amazing siddhas, you know, and, and Sri Ramana Maharshi, and then Gurudev goes to Rishikesh thinking, oh, he's heard everything about this guru. He's so well known throughout right. India, Sri Swami Shivananda Maharaj of the Himalayas. And, <laughs> yeah. and he just can't believe he's made it there. And he's going to actually have an audience with this great sadhak, this incredible Swami, this sage seer enlightened being and he's ushered in and Swami Shivananda sitting cross-legged Gurudev's introduced to him and Swami Shivananda says ah at the time he was Samba Shivam right <laughs> Samba Shivam and he knows he's from Tamil Nadu <laughs> Swami Shivananda himself is from Tamil Nadu he says He's from Tamil Nadu. Bring him a cup of coffee. <laughs> and Gurudev, like his jaw dropped. <laughs> he was like, what? Bring oh, him Italy, dosa. Come, come quick. Get, get from the kitchen. He must be hungry coming all this way. And Gurudev just couldn't believe it. And then do you, you remember the story of when Swami Shivananda was going to send Gurudev out to um, on the tour of India? Do you want to tell the story? Uh, about the chilies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So like, like Pramantri is saying, uh, Swami Shasamananda did come from uh, a more of a strict disciplinary approach to yoga. And it seems like uh, his master, Swami Shivanandaji, really tried to loosen him up about that. So Gurudev was on this very strict diet. I think it was just uh, milk and bananas. Yeah. At the end of the satsang, they give what's called prashad, which is some kind of sweet that the, the guru hands out. With It has some power to it, some shakti to it. So he, he's giving out this green sweet to everybody. 
And then uh, Gurudev comes up to him. He gives him the, the green thing. Gurudev eats it. He takes a bite into it. It was hot chilies. And Gurudev, after, after this pure diet for so long, it was like a, a shot of fire in his mouth. And Swamishana was laughing at him, saying, oh, look at the Yogi Raj. Look at the Yogi Raj. You know, when he goes out, what, what is he going to do when people give him all different types of food? You know, this is India. What is he going to eat? You know, he has to learn to adapt to society. So what a great teaching. Yeah. Gurudev yeah. always shares about that. Yeah. yeah. And he, he became the right person to come to America, right? He, Swamishana had all these disciples. He could have sent anybody, right? Right. Gurudev, Gurudev's the one who came to America. And I mean, Swamishana prepared him to adapt, but he had to really get a, a crash course and culture shock. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so beautiful because he did, he really imbibed all of those lessons from his own guru. Yeah. And then he was the exemplar of how to really live yoga in a beautiful way in which a very balanced way, right? Gurudev just served and served and served. He wanted to People say, don't you think you should retire, not travel? He's like, he didn't, what? Till the end, right? To the very Absolutely. end. Absolutely. Yeah. He yeah, yeah. was born to serve. He served and served and served. But he did also take care of his body. He also, like you said, he, he enjoyed different things. And I think the beauty too was that even like if he would enjoy like seeing a movie, he would have just go to the movies himself. He would just take a whole group of right, students yeah, with yeah. him so everyone could enjoy it. And yeah, yeah. yeah he was very. There was, nothing, there was nothing more fun than going to movies with Gurudev. It was exactly. So... <laughs> and the funnest thing was watching Gurudev instead of the movie. I, <laughs> I know, yeah. Every yeah. movie, Gurudev, oh my gosh. Especially he loved movies that like really funny movies and yeah, yeah. Pratt Falls and everything. And he would just <laughs> laugh in like, I've yeah. never seen anyone laugh the way Gurudev would laugh. Just so full. He's like his yeah. whole body is all. I know. I know. It wasn't like we laugh. He laughed from some very deep place. Yeah. <laughs> he liked, he liked I Love Lucy, right? Oh, he loved, <laughs> he loved all these kind of shows and, and he could watch the same thing. Uh, sometimes I would see him and say, uh, excuse me, I, I think you've seen that. And he'd look at me like, what difference did it make? <laughs> you know, and someone once remarked, I've never seen anyone who can enjoy the same thing over and over again, as if it was the first time mm, they had ever encountered experienced mm -hmm. that because he had that child like you see with a child you do the peekaboo with them you know <laughs> for eternity and they go forever and it's, yeah it's funny every single time that was good Dave. Yeah. so childlike in in his being Ooh. yeah so i want to uh say as we come toward our conclusion that you know the way gurudev gurudev was an example of a full cup and that's why he could serve continually like that, which so much love and joy and heart. So the teaching of the Gita is, is to me, how do you fill the cup so that you don't have to depend on the fruit of your action to try to fill the cup, which it doesn't actually do. I guess you have to first recognize that the act, that this thing isn't going to fill my cup. I have to find another way. And it tells you the way. And it really makes it clear that keeping some type of continual awareness of the presence of this consciousness, the spirit, is the way that a cup gets full. Mm. So you don't have to look for your nourishment outside. 
and it's that's a big project. How do you how do we learn how to keep a continual awareness of this presence? Uh, yeah. Mantra, of course, is, can be helpful, but if you start doing mantra mechanically, then it's just it doesn't have the same effect. It has to the 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 vibration of the mantra has to tune us into this living consciousness, and that's what would make me full enough to not look for the fruit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That makes t- oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah. So that's really the heart of the Gita. That's that's what, the heart. That's what the Gita is teaching us. Yeah. So if you haven't picked up the book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gurudev's The Living Gita. I mean, that's yeah, it's I beautiful. Yeah, Gita. that's that's the title of Gurudev's translation and commentary of the Bhagavad Gita, and it's coming in audiobook uh, very soon. Oh, it'll be on Audible. Who's the narrate? Who narrates it? It's narrated by a gentleman in India. Mm, nice. Piyush mm-hmm. uh, Agarwal, uh, mm. who's a voiceover artist, and he does a beautiful, beautiful mm. job really conveying mm. all of Gurudev's words. Yeah. Thank you, Pramanjali, for making these things available to us. Uh, I really appreciate that you not just think about these projects, but execute them. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's my my on my <laughs> honor my honor to be a conveyor belt. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That you're giving birth to uh, something. Yeah. <laughs> Sending it out into the world to yeah, hopefully yeah. bring some peace, inspiration, wisdom, sharing Gurudev's teachings. That's that's what we're doing here in yeah. this podcast. We're sharing really the joy, the richness, the enlivening aspects of all the teachings of yoga, integral yoga, and it's a blessing to be able to do that. Great blessing. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and other apps. For more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to IntegralYoga.org. Om Shanti.